This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Marketing Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and of course, children of all ages, welcome to the program. Yep, yep, yep. The Hip Hop Prop is the name. And of course, segmentation, targeting, messaging, and positioning is the game. Listeners, you are to be saluted. This is Sirius XM Channel 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. My co-host, Barbara Kahn, is not in tonight. So your boy is, of course, flying solo. I'm your host, Professor Americus Reed. It's an incredible day today. Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. They call me the czar of the MAR. I'm always grinning and winning and never sinning. Twitter handle is, of course, at A-M-R-E-E-D-2 on the knowledge creation tip. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, but don't lose your grip. This is not your father's marketing professor. Uh, This is Marketing Matters. We air live Wednesdays, 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And, of course, as usual, we have a banging show. Here is what we've got tonight on the show. At 5 o'clock, we've got Stephen Han Griffiths. He's Chief Reputation Officer at Reputation Institute. We're going to speak with him about the impact of reputation on brand equity and what they do to measure that. So with that, let's jump right in and bring in our first guest. This is... Stephen Han Griffiths. Welcome to the show, my friend. Great to be with you. Very excited to have you here, sir. I like to always start out with a conversation where I introduce my listeners to our guests, and they talk a little bit about their particular journey. So I'd like you to start with that. How did you get interested in where did you start and how did you end up where you are? Well, uh, you can probably tell from my accent I'm not from these parts. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in the U.K., was destined to go to medical school, become Ooh, a doctor. Okay. And then I made a sharp left turn and went into advertising, branding, and marketing. Wow. And spent my formative years in the agency world, at least of not which at Saatchi and Saatchi, and uh, ended up as chief strategy officer of Leo Burnett in Chicago. Uh-huh. Uh, then I wow. saw the light and realized the power of brand and made that jump to reputation, which is the world I'm in today. Ah, that's incredible. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about this background, because this, this sharp left turn, Stephen, this is very interesting. So you, were, <laughs> you had your eyes set on the medical profession, right? So what, what was it? did you come to a realization that perhaps what was in that domain for you to uh, savor on was not exactly what you wanted or meaningful for your soul? What happened there? Well, you know, um, enabling event, um, I obviously had a passion for curiosity, desire to learn and, and making the world a better place to live. And I guess I never really thought that marketing was the lens through which I was going to manifest that to realization. But in many ways, rather than talk to patients, I ended up talking to consumers, applying the science and understanding of how you problem solve. And so for me, many of the uh, skills I learned in uh, potentially oh. practicing medicine were easily translated to marketing. So I saw parallels and you know what, marketing's perhaps a little more fun than big medicine. <laughs> and yes, and you know, if you design a bad ad, you know, people don't buy, they don't die, but they That's may right. not buy the product, right? Exactly right. <laughs> very, very cool. So I love this idea, though, Stephen, of, you know, uh, consumers instead of patients. So when you made this pivot and you got interested in kind of this, this sort of behavioral uh, understanding of, you know, what drives people's interests and opinions and attitudes and intentions and purchase behaviors. What was some of the initial things that sort of you started to learn as you dove into this area in advertising? 
Yeah, I've always understood that people are driven by behavior, and behavior is driven by understanding of based of how people think and how they feel, and ultimately that inspires what they do. Um, so for me, being able to connect the dots between both the emotional, the rational, the visceral, and ultimately the sort of psychological and your ability to tap into people's mindset and potentially persuade them in the most compelling way possible mm -hmm. with wonderful messages and ad-like objects and, and, and amazing digital strategies in today's world, I found just too exciting and, mm. and, uh, and too hard to resist. And there was, there was a, a bit of intellectual curiosity there and diving into the black box, as it were, right, Stephen, and trying to really understand, like, get a little bit deeper than just not uh, just sort of depicting what people are going to do, but understanding the why about what's going to drive their behaviors. Does that sound like a fair characterization? In, in, indeed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've come a long way from the world of uh, survey-based insight and learning and mm. focus groups, all of which have value. But in today's world, there's so many different ways you can mine the sort of human interest uh, and the stratosphere of of what they're motivated by and inspired by. So uh, it's just exciting to see this whole new world open up of insight, mining, and learning that takes us to new and exciting frontiers. And so these new and exciting frontiers, they I think you're touching on a very important point, Stephen, which is this, this idea that you know, the old ways in which we try to understand consumers are changing. And now with the digital revolution, as it were, uh, we are able to uh, pick up and capture information that we couldn't capture uh, years ago, right? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we've always had a good understanding of the what, you know, mm -hmm. what people are interested in, what motivates them, what inspires them. But today, through the ability to connect traditional research to forms of listening, we can now also understand the why. Mm -hmm. What are some of the underlying motivations? What is the symbolism? What are the sort of psychological overtures that mm. inspire you to do something? Your ability to listen in and connect to what people are, are thinking about and what they're talking about and what they're saying about your brand or your company and your ability to also now measure that connects the dots to not only how you can more effectively communicate, but also to the end outcomes, to the sort of the economic triggers, whether mm. they are purchase decisions or advocacy decisions. So you can now connect the dots in ways that were never possible. So that's what makes this truly exciting, I think. Very exciting. I love this term. You just use a term, Stephen, that I absolutely love. You use the term psychological overtures. And yeah. uh, that, that was just beautiful. That was like music to my intellectual ears. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that. I'm going to actually use that in the, uh, in the future. I'm going to cite you. Uh, <laughs> so, but I, I love this idea that you're, that you're really describing here, which is, and we preach this all the time at, at, uh, at this institution, Stephen, this idea of like, listen, you have to go deeper. You have to truly understand those economic, emotional, psychological triggers to be able to really have a firm grasp of what your consumer is going to do. And ultimately, that is sort of the linchpin of marketing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, totally. And, and obviously, your ability to understand the competitive point of difference, like the space in which you can operate, what is the zone in people's minds that you can begin to own, what are some of the triggers that align with your unique value proposition as a brand, as mm. a company, mm -hmm. you know, the, the trick is to find perhaps an opportunity that no one else has seen, or maybe there's new and interesting ways of recrafting old insights, all of which lead to higher levels of uh, support, high levels of purchase behavior, 
and even things like willingness to work for and invest in. I mean, today's world, it's not just about getting people to buy your products. Mm. Increasingly, it's about getting them to buy into your company Uh truly, madly, deeply. I love this point that you just made, Stephen, because this is something that is absolutely an important topic right now. And I have to say, as I talk to companies out there, this this issue seems to come up over and over and over again. It's exactly what you said, Stephen, which is the notion of within the organization, within the four walls of the building, there is there is a brand. The company, the organizational culture is a brand. And your point is very important, which is to say that, you know, we are branding our what we do to our employees And to the extent that we're able to get them to buy into our vision, our mission, our goals, our values, it makes our job as marketers, I don't want to say easy, but easier in the sense that we now have a legion of loyal soldiers who that can go out there and sing our praises and really do it in an organic and authentic way, correct? Yeah, I I think so. And I think the sort of... uh manifestation of this sense of purpose uh, is really Mm. the permission we grant people to sort of indulge in our brand experiences within our own brand world. So if they can buy into a set of ideals, in other words, the promise you intend to keep, the values that you tend to imbue, your desire to make the world a better place to live, and you can align that with the enterprise values and Mm -hmm. what you stand for. Uh, So understanding what P&G stands for in totality will get you to buy more Pampers and more Head & Shoulders and and, and more (laughs) other products that define the company. So Mm -hmm. it really makes business sense to understand the enterprise, which based on our data would represent about two-thirds of the weight of importance in, in making a decision today versus just solely focusing on the products is about one-third of the weight of importance. So it's, it has business uh, value, too, beyond the good world that it might engender. Wow. So, it's, you, so in your research and the work that you've done, you're finding that there is approximately 66% of the, of the emphasis of the importance weight is put on these kinds of issues? Absolutely. And that's mm. been a significant change over the last sort of 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so we, we measure reputation, and I guess the way to think about that is, your ability to effectively manage your brand is the means to the end of your reputation. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. your brand is, is the promise, it's the set of ideals, it's the set of values that you want people to communicate and buy into on your behalf. Mm-hmm. Your reputation is the filter that says, did I believe you or did you deliver on those needs and expectations? Oh. And so when we look at the, the world through the lens of reputation, we see that the enterprise, the corporate parent brand, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. Uh, is exactly as you state, around two-thirds of the weight of importance of reputation. What it says is if you if you focus on products and services alone, you are leaving equity on the table. Mm-hmm. In fact, you're leaving yourself open to reputation risk, mm-hmm. uh, and ultimately long-term uh, financial implications will be inhibited if you don't fully leverage the power of your corporate reputation. Very, very cool stuff. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking to Stephen Hahn Griffiths. He is a chief reputation officer, the coolest title on the planet, ladies and germs, chief reputation officer of the Reputation Institute. And he's talking with us today about the brand and, of course, the brand as it, it gets pressure tested out there in the marketplace as you develop, if you're a company or organization or service or, or, or what have you, a product, and you're trying to deliver your promise, as Stephen was saying your reputation really is what's going to drive the extent to which people will believe what you have to say and 
Stephen's research is literally telling us that that's an important factor. It's probably increasingly important out there. Uh, if you're interested in joining this conversation, here's the number. This is Sirius XM Channel 132, Business Radio Powered by the Wharton School. Our number is one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Join the conversation. But Stephen, I want to talk about this because you are leading the way and leading the charge on quantifying so this is so hard because we a lot of times Stephen, what happens is i talk to people and they think marketing is like fluffy stuff you know it's like this all, always qualitative and oh, it's really you know you know soft and fuzzy and what you're saying is no you're saying that we can actually literally quantify reputation and track it over time and understand how companies services products organizations brands are doing in this space is that correct Absolutely. Uh, we have empirical data that goes back prior to the Great Recession, in fact, mm. over 20 years of research that helps us understand the, the context of how reputation moves markets. So we can align measures of reputation with shifts in share price value. We can look at it relative to market cap. We can look at other economic indicators such as purchase behavior, employee engagement, um, all sorts of metrics that align the empirical evidence that says that reputation is critical to enhancing success of the business. And typically in any given year, we're talking to a swath of around a million individual respondents around wow. the world across 22 different countries to validate this hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And whether you're in a BRIC nation that's a developing market or you're on the cusp of Western civilization in the UK and the US and beyond, we know reputation matters, and, mm -hmm. and that's uh, critical as, as a form of measurement. And so I, I want you to, without revealing the secret sauce, if you will, uh, Stephen, I want you to talk a bit, as much detail as you can, about the brand reputation index or this brand rep reputation score. My understanding is that the Reputation Institute, of which you are chief reputation officer, uh, has just released its annual U.S. RepTrack 100 rankings. Is this correct? That, that is correct. And, and what the rankings represent is a combination of how people feel mm. about the corporate brand and ultimately how they think. And, and the feel part is measured based on a, a, an algorithm that calibrates the esteem, admiration, trust mm. and respect that you would attribute to any given company. So when you hear the words Procter & Gamble, it's capturing that sort of visceral emotional reaction instantaneously mm. and can basically pro providing a spectrum of a score of, of 0 to 100 oh. on how it calibrates versus a competitive set. Mm -hmm. And then we dig deeper, and then we deconstruct, cognitively speaking, how people think mm -hmm. based on seven core dimensions and 23 discrete attributes which Ooh. become the drivers mm -hmm. of your potential to increase reputation. So it's connecting the, how people feel to how they think and using it as a framework for measurement to compare versus competition. And what the most recent study found, and this is really fascinating, is the first time since uh, the end of the Great Recession, we saw a global decline in reputation. Mm. We've seen increases oh. literally incrementally one year after the other until this past year where we saw a significant decline. In fact, we lost three, three pulse points of reputation across all companies measured huh. um, in the United States. Okay. And this is, this is for the United States companies, yes? This is U.S. We, we also oh. measure globally, but I'm going I'm to focus on the U.S. because okay. I think w what was critical here was a, an erosion of trust that was truly significant. Mm. So overall, all companies measured in, in the U.S., there were just over 900 that we measured, uh, three, po three pulse point decline in, 
in overall reputation. If I tell you that one pulse point translates to $1 billion of market cap, then we start to take the conversation very seriously. Wow. $1 billion. So we're talking about $3 billion of market cap that has completely disappeared as a function of, across the board, 900 companies that were surveyed and analyzed in this report uh, in terms of their reputation falling, trust eroding. Is that what you're saying? Total erosion of trust. Hmm. And, you know, think about what's happened in the world in the past uh, two years. So we, we've seen the emergence of tweet ranting, and not just in the political <laughs> stratosphere, but in general, right? Yes. Um, but we've also think, seen things like the emergence of fake news. We used to trust the news media. We used to trust companies. Yes. Uh, we've seen data breaches, um, significant ones at companies like Equifax. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen record profits on Wall Street, which creates the expectation for your desire to give back to society. We've seen the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. All these things, all these intangibles have significantly eroded trust across all companies. So uh, what we, where we are today is there's a strong correlation between absence of trust and significant decline in reputation. Unbelievable. This is frightening stuff because I was just, you know, listening to the radio as everyone is, uh, the news as well, Stephen, and I'm, you know, checking out Zucks and uh, how he lost apparently $11 billion of his own personal wealth in the last week or so. Yep. Uh, and this idea, t- tell, me where, tell me where Facebook is on your list. Yep, Facebook doesn't feature in the top 100. In fact, we've seen Facebook <laughs> go through a precipitous decline. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the uh, Cambridge Analytica mm-hmm. uh, debacle w- was a big part of that, but actually goes back over a number of years. Um, and I think part of the challenge with companies like Facebook, they've become so myopic in the product delivery experience, mm-hmm. in the, p- the pursuit of innovation, they forget about one thing that's especially critical in today's world. Corporate social responsibility. Corporate social responsibility. Talk and about if you, that. If you don't have it, you're at risk. Mm-hmm. And, and so companies like Facebook, um, Volkswagen, ah. Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. to name a few, are examples <laughs> of companies that really, um, in the court of public opinion, were accused of lack of corporate social responsibility, mm-hmm. of doing dishonest things, of lacking integrity. And it comes back to hurt them in terms of their overall reputation scores in the long term. Wow. So you mentioned Wells Fargo and uh, Volkswagen had the emissions scandal, this brand crisis that really hurt the hurt the reputation of the brand, Stephen. Uh, and so what do you think is – sort? I mean, I, I look at – you know, in some senses, we, we see Zucks. I like to refer to him as Zucks, by the way. Uh, he seems like a really nice guy. But, you know, recent news came out, uh, I think today, that, you know, they are – they Facebook is trying to eliminate or, or is empirically eliminating about one million uh, fake accounts and uh, inappropriate accounts per day. And so at what point, as we as consumers are going to give some of these big tech companies a, a break, right? In some senses, it's like, yeah, the reputation of Facebook is taking a hit. But, like, what are we expecting them to do at that kind of scale? I and mean, they can't be checking, you know, everything, right? So how, does, how do companies like Facebook that have such a, a huge, deep reach, how do they protect their reputation vis-a-vis your analyses that you track at the Reputation Institute? Well, it's it's a it's a tough place right now. So the 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 real answer to the question is you proactively manage your reputation so that when your crisis comes, you have enough emotional equity in the bank to trade off, so you don't get yourself into a pickle like this. But I suppose where Facebook is today is we zero in onto uh, the sort of metric of governance, and governance is the 
the honesty metric. Are, are you open? Are you transparent? Are you operating with integrity? Mm-hmm. Do you put your good intentions of, of doing the right thing first and foremost? And, and clearly, over the last two, three years, even going back to the meddling around the, uh, the Russians, uh, if, if that indeed is true, it's an allegation, of course, but there are accusations that that has happened. All these things are examples of, of bad governance, mm-hmm. um, where systems should have been put in place um, integrity should have been of, of, of paramount, mm-hmm. and so therefore, Facebook is now going through a, 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 a tough time because of that loss of uh, trust, um, and it's going to take a lot of uh, a lot of very strong uh, and conservative action on on metrics of governance in in truly putting measures in place so that this never happens again. Not just about data breach, mm-hmm. but against the access to uh, an individual's personal data, mm-hmm. uh, even down to how it operates from, from an advertising model standpoint. Um, there needs to be a lot of security precautions put in place for Facebook to regain the reputational equity at, at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. It's in a mode of reputation risk. And, and, and Zuckerberg by himself is not going to be strong enough to get the company out of this uh, current quagmire. Listeners, we are speaking with Stephen Han Griffiths. He is chief reputation officer of the Reputation Institute. He's telling us how to protect the brand. He's telling us the extent to which you should invest resources and effort into the overall business mission. But in terms of the reputation and the values of the business vis-a-vis uh, trying to build up that equity versus putting time and effort into the product. Let's jump to the phone lines. We've got Jessica from New Jersey. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the program. Hi, Americus. How are you? I'm doing very well. What's your question? <laughs> I, um, you know, this is this is so timely, this topic, and I appreciate your guests being on. Um, as a small business, not a Procter & Gamble, not a Facebook, but Kona Benelli is the name of the business, and, and we've come to, I have struggled with the brand identity of do I put all my eggs in one basket as to promote the brand identity and the Mm -hmm. reputation of the main parent company or the product, which is, which is a different name. It's called the Throby. But when you're building a social networking community and you have your, um, your Facebook and your Instagram and all that, does it go under the parent company? Does it go under the product company? Mm. What if the product spins off as a, as a different beast, or what if, God forbid, it gets, you know, a bad reputation itself, mm-hmm. should that not affect the parent company? So if you were to choose, which would you go with, the parent company or the product in terms of, mm. you know, your mm-hmm. whole universe, your business? What are your thoughts, Stephen? Well, I think the uh, the council would be prioritized for the long term, the enterprise, because if people buy into your company, they will consistently purchase your product and come back again. Mm. Um, oh, even, thank goodness. Even, I love your answer and your <laughs> accent, and it's wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, but I would say the, the, the word of caution is, and, and something you said was, you know, if, if we have a product problem, would it negatively impact on the company? Well, maybe we, we don't tell the, the, the general public what the name of our company is so that we can maybe launch another product. Well, mm. that would be a very dangerous proposition. Mm-hmm. In today's digital age, people know how to connect products to companies. It doesn't take a lot of effort. So uh, I would say as you build equity in building the company, obviously, 
delivering and excelling on your on your products and services is key to consolidating your reputation. So uh, I would advise you to to act cautiously in that regard. Very very cool. We appreciate the call, Jessica. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Jessica is a friend of the Wharton School and this pr- program in particular. Uh, she is a fantastic individual. Thanks for that call. Uh, I love this idea that you're talking about building out the reputation. Stephen, I, I, we're pushing up a little, uh, a little bit uh, against time here, but I do want to cover a couple of additional things. I want you to tell our listeners, this is very important, uh, you mentioned so, seven core dimensions, seven core dimensions of reputation that, uh, that your index tracks. Can you give us some insight into those seven things, and maybe that's a way to kind of lay out a bit of a roadmap for companies to be a little bit more diligent and focused in on those seven things as levers to make sure that they are pulling the right um, reactions toward developing the right equity with respect to their brand reputations. Absolutely. So the seven dimensions are products and services as one, innovation, two, workplace, governance, citizenship, leadership, and performance. These seven dimensions represent 100% of the weight of reputation of any given company. Mm-hmm. Where we've seen significant increases in the past three years are on the metrics of citizenship and governance. What it basically says is the general public have very high expectations for not only telling the truth and operating with integrity, which is the governance metric, Mm -hmm. but citizenship, which is a combination of both social and environmental responsibility. So the jury's out on both of those dimensions on whether they believe your company is, is engendering goodwill and trying to do the right thing by society. Stephen, I want to thank you so much. That was a fascinating and incredibly interesting and intellectually invigorating discussion. Thanks for coming on the show tonight. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Stephen, go to reputationinstitute.com. That's one word. Or follow him on Twitter at S-H-A-H-N-G-R-I-F-F. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 